Well, if you're just joining us, uh, we've been going through this letter to 1 Timothy, written by the Apostle Paul, really with an eye toward uh, discipleship um, and what it means to be the church and how the church is called to make disciples. And you come to this chapter uh, 5, and it seems like a departure from the main themes of the letter, but uh, we'll look at why it's a, it's not. It's really a culmination of uh, of where the letter, or, or really a kind of something of a purpose of why Paul's writing the letter. It's in chapter five, First Timothy, chapter five, uh, one through sixteen. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents. For this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, their children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is God's word. Widows are an interesting topic in Scripture. Widows and orphans oftentimes are combined. How a culture or how people treat widows and orphans, those who are the most vulnerable oftentimes in society, is really a measure of that society. God's commands in the Old Testament and New Testament are very clear about not oppressing those people who are vulnerable whether they're widows or orphans, the social outcasts, the poor, even sojourners or strangers in the land, immigrants in the land. You look around and the list is very similar today as it was in Jesus' time of those people who are oftentimes most vulnerable in a culture. But it's not without challenges that you approach people who are vulnerable with compassion. 
On the one hand, those with big hearts oftentimes have small pocketbooks, limited resources. Even those who have seemingly endless resources can't solve the problems of society. People make goals of solving the promise, problem of homelessness or of orphans or foster programs all the time. But society in any culture has yet to come up with a full solution. The, the problems and the challenges to it are numerous. And you can imagine Timothy writing to his mentor, Paul, saying, Paul, you've set in motion in the city of Ephesus this compassionate people who want to serve other people, but we have more widows than we have money in the account to pay for them. More than that, we have this problem of people who are receiving financial help and not marrying again, and they're getting themselves into trouble. They have more time on their hands and they know what to do with, and it's leading them into places of being a busybody, having to find things to do, and more than that, gossiping, or more specifically in the text, it means foolishly talking. Just going around and talking about meaningless things. Now, that's not to say that small talk is always bad. But this small talk entered into places of danger that surely included gossiping about other people. Going on about different philosophies, even following, if you remember, the false teachers that were prevalent in Ephesus. And what were some of those false teachers teaching? They were teaching to abstain from marriage. That in these ascetic principles or practices, abstaining from marriage, abstaining from certain foods, practicing uh, self-disciplines beyond what God has called us to do, we, they would enter into some type of religious higher state. And you can imagine, too, Timothy writing to him and saying, they're even confusing your teachings, Paul, because when Paul taught, he said, I desire that everyone would be like me and stay single because it can devote their lives to the teaching and the, the, the preaching. But, Paul said, not everyone is called to be like me. Not everyone can be like me. Each of us has our own gifts. But these false teachers are twisting your teaching and saying, be like Paul. You're going to be truly religious if you can be like Paul and stay out of marriage. It's not hard to imagine even the widows in these scenarios, many of whom are young women who have lost husbands to sicknesses, perhaps even in war, in battles, experiencing the pain of that and finding some solace and saying, I don't want to experience that pain again. Paul's language to Timothy sounds a little bit harsh on these younger women. But I don't think Paul is without compassion for these younger women because the solution that he offers to Timothy 
is a solution that ultimately meets everybody's needs. It's a solution that doesn't neglect the compassion and need of caring for those who are vulnerable and outcast. But it's also a solution that acknowledges God's creation orders and how God made man and woman, husband and wife to come together and to be one flesh and to be dependent on one another and not just dependent on God. That call and that command even to be fruitful and multiply, to have children, has all kinds of echoes throughout this book of 1 Timothy. And what Paul is saying is that the coming of Jesus did not change God's world order in his command and in his instructions and in his design for humanity to be fruitful and multiply. For most people, the vast majority of people, to be husband and wife, to be married. But it no, neither does it neglect the important roles of single people, both men and women, both those who have never married and those who have been married and have lost a spouse or even those who have gone through the painful process of divorce, experiencing abandonment by a spouse, or infidelity by a spouse. One of the questions that's asked about this passage is why, why in the midst of this whole letter that seems to have all kinds of structures about how the church should operate, and elders, and deacons, and public worship, and and uh, uh, the giving uh, generosity toward the church is such a big set chunk of, of text devoted to the topic of caring for widows. Not to say widows aren't important, but it seems at first glance to be a bit out of place. Until you think about how widows and our approach to those people who are most vulnerable around us, even in our own congregation, uncovers all kinds of heart attitudes. And it's not an easy thing. But when we interact with those who have a disability, either for a short term or a long term, who are going through immense difficulties, when we interact with those who are in need because husbands or wives are deployed, when we interact with those who are not able to learn, who have long-term disabilities and handicaps, mental illnesses, our ability to love is oftentimes stretched to its limits. We go back and forth between hardening our hearts and keeping a safe distance lest we get pulled in too much to something and oftentimes entering in full board and getting overwhelmed with the needs and facing our own time limits. Widows in the ancient church were a serious need also a challenge. Oftentimes, and this is not entirely the case, oftentimes 
a wife would have depended on her household for sustenance. The economy of the ancient world centered around the household and much of the industry centered around going to work on the local farm and in the, in the, the property itself. The household extended oftentimes beyond the biological family to include uh, bond servants, those who had a debt they couldn't pay off, and so they entered into some type of contractual agreement with, the, with, with an owner of a household, a head of a household, or household itself to work off that debt. Some of the time, they're hired hands, laborers who were brought into the household. Oftentimes, they slept on the same property. They knew each other. They grew up together. They were, they were, they were close. And so what's happening in this situation is that a widow, women who have lost a spouse are oftentimes somehow cast out of that household or find themselves out of that household for one of many reasons. And sometimes, sometimes their spouse was the only one left in the household. This seems to have been the case with uh, Naomi. You remember Naomi and, uh, and Ruth from the, and, the, and uh, the story from the book of Ruth. Naomi's husband dies and she goes off, or excuse me, she goes off to foreign land. Her husband dies in the foreign land and then she comes back with another of her widows, Ruth. And, and there's no one there to run the household. Other times, this seems to be a case of cruelty within the household, sending women off, not caring for those who are loved. That's the critique that Paul gives when he says, look, if, if those who are a part of the household don't care for the person, they're, they're worse than an unbeliever. And this isn't to say that unbelievers are the worst thing in the world. Rather, he's saying that unbelievers oftentimes care for those who are vulnerable, the widows and others in their culture, in better ways than Christians are. It's a challenge that's applicable in Paul's time and in our time. Oftentimes, people who are outside of the church have more compassion or are more actively caring for those around them than people in the church are. And we should commend those who are outside the church for doing it, and we should also take Paul's challenge to make sure that we're caring for those in needs inside the church. These are not easy questions, and they call not only for a heart of compassion, but they call for wisdom. They call for an application of understanding how God has made us in that created order and following that created order so that as families, we don't splinter and ignore the needs of other people in our family. It's like a set of concentric circles where the first line of defense is the immediate family, the second line of defense is the extended family, the third line of defense is the church family. And the church needs to constantly be looking around and being aware of what the needs are and praising those families who are caring for those needs, but also actively engaging when people are outside of the fold, when they don't have a family to look after them. Those who are, he, in Paul's language, truly widows, verse 3. 
In a technical sense, all of them are widows, but Paul says those who are truly widows, enroll them in the list and care for them. Care for them. Provide for them. Give them a place to live. But this doesn't mean everybody who needs something in the church. He sets some criteria for this. Those who are faithful in life and service. Those who are giving themselves to praying for the work of the church and for the livelihood of of those around, having a reputation for good works, being the wife of one husband, not meaning that they haven't been married more than once, but being, like we said earlier in the case of the qualifications for elders and deacons, a one-woman man. Here we have a one-man woman, not unfaithful to her husband, Having brought up children, being faithful to that diligent and and time-consuming call, sometimes in our, uh, in our, our, our desire to show compassion and mercy, in our desire to show equality across uh, the genders and and to to create a a good place in the workplace, in the marketplace for women as well as men, which is to be commended and is biblical as well, we undermine the significance of the call to motherhood and of raising children. And we should never raise up one thing at the expense of another. We are so prone to do that in all of life. We compare ourselves with other people in order to measure our progress. Test scores give us percentiles to see how we performed in comparison to others. All around us, we evaluate ourselves compared to others. Even when we're caring for widows, it's tempting for us to say, well, at least I'm not in their situation. But the heart of wisdom and the heart of compassion that Jesus directs his followers to, that Paul is giving to Timothy, is to look at the widows and see how valuable they are in the economy of the church, in the economy of the city, in the economy of the, 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 the household. And we should note that the economy in that time that was so based on that household I described before is not necessarily the economy that we just want to port and say if we could only return to that structure and create some type of communal life today, we would have the biblical answer. God, when he made Adam and Eve, put them in a garden. God, when he presents the end product of all of creation, the place of great flourishing, it's a a city. The economy changes over time. And so today's life and economy looks different than what Paul's did. And so we don't necessarily need to find and return to those structures to find an answer to the problem. But we can still look around and see those who are vulnerable around us and see in them both a valuable member of God's economy and an opportunity to challenge us as individuals in the church on how we extend in compassion to others and what we experience in our heart. Do you look on others and say, at least I'm not them? Do you look on others and say, that problem is too big for me to solve? Do you look on others and compare yourselves to them 
Do you look on others and say, I just don't have time today? Or do you look on other people who are in a different situation than you and say, this is an opportunity to love and to be loved in return? This is an opportunity to serve others because Jesus has served me. This is an opportunity to imitate God who is, as Psalm 68 describes, a father to the fatherless and protector of widows. This is an opportunity to follow God's commands when he says, do not mistreat any widow or fatherless child in Exodus 22. This is an opportunity to practice true religion that James describes in chapter 1 Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. This is an opportunity to practice genuine love and following God's commands in real ways. And real ways are always messier than the conceptual high point of life. If you go back and you look at Exodus chapter 20, you'll find the Ten Commandments. Most of you are fairly familiar with those Ten Commandments. And if you go on through roughly chapter 24, you'll find a, a number of other commandments. These commandments are like laws, like laws that Congress passes. Here are the laws. But if you keep reading throughout Exodus 25 and even into Leviticus, you'll find what are commonly referred to as case laws, where the laws end up in practice having to be decided by judges in challenging ways. We still base our legal structure on this kind of practice. We write the laws, Congress writes the laws, and then our courts interpret those laws in difficult settings, oftentimes in ways that the original law was not very specific about. And that's exactly what happens with widows, is that these case laws, is that this, this specific case study situation presents a challenge simply to that command from Exodus 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. Timothy's writing Paul, he says, I know you said this, but, but this is a difficult situation. What do we do with those things when they come? Well, part of the answer is that we collaborate with other people to understand the breadth of the word of God, to understand how compassion is oftentimes confronted by our very limitations to understand that even in our limitations, we learn something about God, namely that we can't solve all the problems around us. When we come up against these limits, we're in a position to know more about God and ourselves than when we seem to have everything going fine.
In fact, I'd venture to say this, that God gives us these opportunities to love and to serve others as opportunities for us to grow in our own faith and love. As a challenge, even to what Paul refers to here that the, these widows are, are facing, a challenge to some of our own proneness to idleness. You know, one of the most dangerous things around is idleness. And idleness is a little bit like greed we've talked about before. No one comes to the pastor and says, Pastor, I think I struggle with idleness. No one comes to the pastor and says, Pastor, I think I struggle with greed. It's always these other bigger, seemingly bigger things. But idleness is one of the most dangerous things in all of life. Remember the story of David when he enters into adultery with Bathsheba and, uh, and then murders Bathsheba's husband to cover it up. You remember what, what was at the heart of that? There's, there's an interesting short line here right at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 11 that's very telling and that's very convicting. In the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they, they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. I think there's reason to believe this was a just war, but that's the second point. But right at the end of that verse, here's what it says. But David remained at Jerusalem. A very telling line. And that is when David was supposed to go out with his troops in battle. Instead, he stayed home. Now, I'm sure he had all kinds of things to keep him occupied back there. But when he neglected to do the things that he was called to do, it put him in a position of vulnerability that ultimately led to his poor decision, decisions and the sins, the sins that people do come to the pastor to confess. Sex. And I haven't had anybody confess murder, but certainly anger and resentment at others. The heart of the sin is oftentimes under the surface in the form of idols. That is, idols of the heart, carved images. The heart is an idol factory and also idleness. An awareness of what we should be doing, and yet we don't do it. For whatever reasons. Maybe it's because of false teaching. People have taught us, well, the real religion is to do this, as was the case with these young women in Ephesus. Maybe it's a fear of not being able to do the thing that we're called to do, a lack of faith that God won't give us what we need to do it. Maybe it's a slow dulling of any kind of desire any kind of motivation because we faced difficulties throughout life and seen one disappointment after another. All kinds of other reasons out there for not doing the things that God calls us to do. Most of us have some sense of that. Some of us don't have a sense. 
Pastor Kevin DeYoung has a helpful statement. He says, just do something. Oftentimes, when you have a big task ahead of you, the best thing to do is just to start in on something. Just start writing the letter you intend to write. Just start doing the project at the house that you know you need to do. Just start going to your neighbor and offering to help around the house when things seem overwhelming. Just start. Just do something. And see what God does to open up our hearts for compassion. Now, one of the questions I asked with this passage is, where is the gospel in this? I mean, it seems fairly uh, legalistic in the sense of, here's what you have to do, now go do it. I'm sure that most of us have felt convicted at some point along this message, like, yeah, I need to be doing that. Yeah, I need to, be, I need to change my heart attitude. What, where is the gospel in all of this? And the gospel in all of Paul's letters is almost always in the first half of the letter where Paul reminds his hearers of what Christ has done for them and then the second half of the letter almost always tells them, now because Christ has done this for you, here are the things we're called to do. Here's the way that we are made to live. Not out of guilt. Like, don't you know? Jesus did this for you. Now why aren't you carrying your end of the bargain? Love that looks like a guilt trip is ultimately no love at all. It is the self-centeredness that is characteristic of these young women who are not ultimately focused on God but they're self-indulgent, dead even while they live. True religion understands that God has made a way for us to be restored in relationship with him in relationship with others through his own sacrificial giving that knows no limits. True religion knows that when someone comes to our door in the middle of the night, like that story, the parable that Jesus said, the man in the middle, in the middle of the night, as one pastor put it, someone comes in the middle of the night to our door and says, I need bread, and we realize we don't have bread, knows exactly who does have bread and where we can find it. True religion doesn't see ourselves as the end and solution to everybody's problem. But when we face problems, we bring it to God and to the church. And we as, as a collective whole, not just the church, but God himself, bring the answer. And that begins with Jesus, but never ends with Jesus. It meets the physical needs of others. It shows love to those who are vulnerable and hurting. It creates a fund for those few cases of somebody who genuinely has no one. And they need help just making rent and paying the bills. It doesn't necessarily 
exclude ourselves from state programs as well. And I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole today, but some state programs are helpful and some aren't. Some people say, well, welfare just breeds this sort of young woman who's a busybody. I got to tell you, I've worked with a lot of poor people and usually it's single moms. I've yet to see a single mom who receives welfare who's just sitting around eating bonbons all day. There are genuine societal needs. And the answer isn't one extreme or the other, where the state provides everything or the state provides nothing. The answers ultimately are people finding a place in the household of God, where Jesus is the head of that household. Where Jesus, like Boaz, the kinsman redeemer who rescued Ruth and Naomi, enters in and provides a place for all of the household. Where Jesus is helping us as his household to cultivate a heart of compassion, to renew our spirits, to restore our love. to know how to be recipients of mercy and gracious giving, just as well as we are givers. And that's an interesting point because being recipients of gifts is a really difficult place to be in. Oftentimes we find ourselves in awkward relationships. We find ourselves having this feeling like we have to pay something back. And wisdom, wisdom is important in understanding how to give something to others. One of the things Paul is offering to give these young women, he's instructing Timothy to give, is a feeling of usefulness. Because when they marry and when they're in this household and when they're doing the work of raising children and when they're doing this work, either as a young woman remarried or as an older woman in the household of God doing this work, no one, no one benefits from feeling like they are useless. It is one of the worst positions in all of humanity to feel like you are just the recipient of something and have nothing to contribute. And that's not how God made us. God made us to be cultivators of that garden and later the garden city. And in our mercy and in our giving, we should constantly be looking for opportunities to give people the dignity of being able to contribute in ways that are meaningful. One of the often looked, overlooked stories in the Bible and the story of the gospel is the story in Luke chapter 2 of Jesus uh, coming as a, a child to the temple, his parents bringing him to the temple, and these two people know who Jesus is. They're kind of outliers in the whole story. Most people have this hope for Jesus. They don't really recognize him. They don't realize who he is. They're, they're sometimes uh, jealous of who he is. They're sometimes skeptical of who he is. But these two people, Simeon and, and his prophetess Anna, 
And Anna is presented as one of the heroes of all scripture. Anna had been a widow for decades. She lost her husband early. And she gave herself to to the service of the temple, and she lived at the temple in this sort of temple household. There were all kinds of people who served at the temple. It was something of a household with even quarters to live nearby, right there on the temple mount and, and serving this. But Anna recognizes who Jesus is in part because she had given her life to service at the temple and to prayers. Now, again, this may look different in our economy than in the temple economy. And already we see this shifting as the church becomes more localized and in the cities and even meeting in homes. And the questions are are being asked. But, But even still, you see Anna, this widow, lifted up as one of these heroes of the faith. Who had devoted herself to the useful work of prayer. And not just prayer, other forms of service, whatever needed to be done around the temple. I imagine Anna was one of the first ones to step up and say, I'll do it. Both the widows and those who are serving the widows have an opportunity to see Jesus more when those who are vulnerable are around us. I hope as a church that we will continue to move down this path. And when someone comes through the door who has seemingly insurmountable needs, they would feel both loved and useful in the kingdom of God as we live as a family, as a church family here in this neighborhood and in this city. Because Jesus has welcomed us into his household, provided us with all that we need, and made us useful in his household. Let's pray. Father, will you take away our hearts of stone and give us hearts of compassion as Jesus had when he looked out on the crowd and he had compassion on the people because they were as sheep without a shepherd. Will you guard our hearts against haughtiness and against feelings of being overwhelmed, against pride and arrogance in comparing ourselves with others? And help us to be these people who know how to show hospitality to strangers to devote our lives to prayer, to wash the feet of the saints, to find places to serve that may seem meaningless and insignificant in this world, but that are of eternal significance to you. To be useful in your kingdom, because that is the way that you have made each of us with different gifts, serving one purpose and one God. We ask this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen.